think I was supposed to have submitted an announcement, um, but I did it. But we're doing a Galentine's gift exchange. Um, the ladies collectively decided that Valentine's Day sucks. So we're celebrating Galentine's Day instead in protests. So I'll be posting the link to sign up on Facebook and on the DMC ladies group. And then we'll uh, do it similarly to the ornament exchange that we did in December. All right, let's get going this morning. Um, I want to remind you of last week, we talked about uh, upping our giving by about 1800 a month. Just want to encourage you on that here in about a month, we're going to give an update on how that went. And if you want more of a breakdown, uh, you just can look at the recording from last week, or maybe it was the week before last, I can't remember. Um, so that you can kind of get a really specific breakdown of who makes what, where our income goes. We spent about 10 minutes with some really cool charts and graphs made by yours truly. Um, but yeah, that's our goal. And we'll be keep uh, kind of updating you on that as we go. Um, are there any other announcements before I dive right in this morning? All right. So yeah, uh, you're going to finish our finish. <laughs> We're going to finish our vision and um, mission talks and start kind of officially our uh, sermon series for this, uh, this semester. So if you forgot what we're doing, we're doing the Old Testament and New Testament, the consistency of scripture, and the point being trying to bring um, to bear just, you know, that there aren't, there isn't this kind of perceived division between the two testaments. There's an ongoing story, a story of which we're sort of the third testament in. And, um, and we want to, you know, try to prove that kind of help you think through some things from the Old Testament, New Testament. That's going to be broken up into three major categories. The first one is like, uh, is God versus Jesus, which is such a weird way to phrase that. Sounds like Godzilla versus whatever King Kong, uh, which is coming out. No, I was kidding. It would be a weird plug for that. And uh, then the second is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and then the Old Testament uh, laws and the ethics of Christianity. And that's how we're going to break that up. It's all based on your requests, submissions, thoughts. If you have any more in addition to that, great please let us know. So the first one this morning is going to be um, a little bit of an intro. Um, there's some meat here, but the intro just to kind of give some, I don't know, overarching perspective on the difference between the Testaments. So I figured because we're doing our trivia night tonight, I'd start with a little trivia. Um, so the topic first before I get into that is, does God still work in the world in the same way he does in the Old Testament? All right. And so there's kind of two questions there. Uh, one is, does he work the same in the New Testament as he did in the Old Testament? And then, of course, does he work the same consistently in our world today? There have been a lot of well-meaning people talk about the differences in how God works, um, trying to make sense of the Testaments. I'm going to take a viewpoint that God does not change how he works from the Old Testament, the New Testament to today. All right. Uh, there are some changes, but we're going to identify what those changes are hopefully today. All right. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Let's put this into perspective, the Testaments. Uh, so a little bit of trivia for you. A whale shark is the size of a school bus. Okay. Cool. Right. But a blue whale, it's twice the size. Wait, it's two school buses. So a blue whale, the largest animal on the face of the earth is two school buses side to side. Now, again, to put that in perspective, that's a semi truck and a half or a space shuttle, almost a hundred feet long. Right. And, and, and a blue whale's heart is the size of a Volkswagen beetle and a full size person can crawl through its arteries. Awesome. I didn't expect uh, that 
but thank you for adding on to that. Now, I have a trivia question here. How many elephants does a blue whale weigh? And Like with a full belly or an empty belly? Ooh. Like did it eat the elephants or empty? That's, like a, that's a good question. I don't know. See, it's a little bit like GBWR in a car. Um, yeah, it is. I won't, we won't get too much into it. Okay, blue whale dry right? weight. Ten? You got it. Three tons. Blue whale dry Three tons Ten? Okay. Half it's actually elephant. 30 elephants. Oh, I was over. <laughs> that's how much. Now, remember this one to 30 ratio, because this is actually really important moving forward. All I right? like Chelsea's facts better. Yeah. Okay, well, this isn't really a, a test, okay? <laughs> uh, we're just trivia. We're not doing the points yet, so... No money, no money to be earned. <laughs> so let's put the testaments in perspective. All right. So what we know and can prove of the Old Testament, all right, which is really the judge period uh, to, um, you know, when God sort of stopped talking uh, through the prophets is a 1500 year period from, period from Abraham to Malachi. Um, we have about a 1500 year period. Now, obviously, um, there's a lot of before Abraham, but it's very hard to, um, you know, know exactly how to, to frame that in a timeline. So we're not going to worry too much about that. So 1500 years, you could add another 500 years if you pay attention to the Apocrypha and those sort of in-between stages between the Old and New Testament. But for the most part, we're going to say it's about 1500 years. All right. Now take the New Testament. The New Testament Basically, almost all of the letters, except for the exile of, of um, John, take place in a 50-year period. That's 50 years, the birth of Jesus, to most of our letters were written. Now, if you take away the birth of Jesus, which is a very short snapshot, really, we go down even more. And that's really the Old Testament is kind of a 10 to 15-year period, maybe 20 or 30 years. Now, that's the 30 to 1 ratio that we were talking about earlier, earlier with the elephant to a blue whale. That means that the Old Testament covers 30 times as much time as the New Testament does, all right? That's, that's crazy, really, when you think about it, particularly because the Old Testament is only three times as big as the New Testament, all right? Not 30 times as big, like would be proper, but is only three times as big, which is to say that the Old Testament takes a very highlight reel, high-level uh, take on the history of um, during that time period. So of course, some of the events that get uh, you know, um, included are gonna be major shifts, the exile, the nations against nations, the major historical developments. And it's amazing to me even that the Old Testament still dives into some of the really specific stories of individuals throughout, even though uh, it's covering such a huge time frame and such a short amount of actual material. All right. Again, to give you another example, which is this isn't is not near as interesting, I think, to many of you. But hey, we're talking about money this week with GameStop and all that fun stuff. So why not? I've been watching this show called Boardwalk Empire, which uh, if you're not um, uh, privy to you know, my recommendations, you never actually watch anything that I re recommend because it's not wholesome or appropriate for church. Um, so Boardwalk Empire is a show about the 1920s prohibition era. And, you know, this guy in the show, um, Steve Buscemi, he's constantly throwing around hundreds. And I always wanted to know how much a hundred dollars is worth today uh, or his a hundred was worth. And it's 12 times as much money. All right. So still, we don't get to that 30 times one in order to get to the 30 to one difference ratio between a dollar today versus, you know, basically being 
30 times less valuable, we'd have to go all the way back to 1790. All right. Now, the fact of the matter is there was no in, uh, um, uh, inflation over the period of uh, the 18th century or 19th century, which is kind of weird to think about. But basically, in order to get to that 31 difference, so if you had a dollar in 1790, it'd be worth $30 today. All right. So that's how far back we've got to go. There's just another example. So 30 to one, you've got to keep that in your mind when you think about just how much uh, is, is glossed over from the Old Testament perspective. All right. It's a lot like qualitative versus quantitative data. What you get in survey research is kind of cold, hard facts and quantitative. You're actually going to get to hear people's stories and kind of relate to them. And a lot of Old Testament narrative is sort of cold, hard facts. Now, by facts, we've got to be careful there, but we'll get into that a little bit uh, later. Uh, we'll say perceived facts, um, you know, things that people would understand about the world. All right. So, um, Let's talk about this idea of the New Testament. And does God work the same in the Old Testament as he did in the New Testament? Well, to answer that question, let's be really clear about something first. Uh, that is that the fact that Jesus was born at this time period is a huge deal. All right. You've got two major events happening and in fact coinciding here. We've got the destruction of the second and a half, the rebuilt temple uh, in 70 AD, which will never be rebuilt again in our time. Even the thought in Jewish uh, thinking today is that the third temple will be sort of the final holy temple uh, where you know, Jews will reign again. So this temple is destroyed after having been destroyed twice and then rebuilt, this temple is finally destroyed. You've got the exiles, in Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. And then you've got this, this Roman uh, destruction of the temple because the, the Jews rose up to try to fight the Romans. And this temple is destroyed and the Jewish people are dispersed throughout the land. This is the worst exile, the greatest dispersion that had ever taken place up to this moment. And so you place Jesus in you know, 30 to 40 years before this event, and it becomes incredibly clear that God is obviously working in the world during this time period. But that's just Israel's history. Think about what's going on in the larger world. Roman Empire is the largest, most significant Western empire up to this point, sort of. You could kind of talk about the earlier Greek uh, empire and things like that. But in terms of future impact, the Roman Empire is going to have the greatest future impact on the Roman world. I mean, on the, the greater world. All right. We still go back to that empire and talk a lot about its influence on you know, modern and current culture. So, guys, this is a time period in which probably the most significant time period uh, that God could have chosen to do what he did through Jesus. And so the idea that somehow he works differently uh, in terms of chastising his own people, which is really what Jesus is doing, <laughs> freeing the, the poor and destitute. Uh, and working in the world against both the judgment of culture and the redemption of culture, uh, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that, that this moment uh, is indicative of the kind of work that God has done up to this point in the nations. So on to the real question, all right? Does he work now? All right. Um, and I think this is the one that we're most interested in. We're most trying to kind of consider where is our place in all of this how do we determine God's work, particularly the work in the nations and, and things like that? All right. So how did the people in the past know God was working? 
Did they have some stronger sense of God's presence? Were the Old Testament folks somehow more in tune, more in line, um, you know, with what God was doing in the world? Well, not exactly, right? The prophets were the ones that were directing their attention to God's working in the world, all right? And these prophets were really important because the average person didn't have a good sense of where God was working, right? And that's really the prophet role. The prophet's role was to help people see where God was working, what he wanted, and to differentiate his work from other work that was just human work or whatever else, all right? This is what the prophets did. Now, we don't rely on prophets in the same way. We rely on Jesus. And this is the main point of this whole conversation is that we don't have to rely on prophets. We rely on Jesus as the great prophet to finally, once and for all, outline who God is and how he works in the world. In the past, they didn't have that ability. They had to go to the prophets, listen to the prophets, to think about God and to think about his work. One of the major great and wonderful things about Jesus is we have the prophet of prophets, the son of God, to tell us who God is and how he works. And in some ways, this kind of matches up with the individual versus corporate uh, way of society's thinking, right? Israelites were a very corporate society. They needed the prophets to speak to everyone. We have Jesus. We can kind of look at his individual character individually and understand, you know, who God is. So we're dealing, though, with a very different perspective, fundamentally, okay? The Old Testament, ancient times, everything of significance was attributed to God or gods, all right? Good or bad. And so what God did was he gave the law to them so they would have a specific understanding of how this God was different from the gods that they knew and understood around them. They needed this because it ultimately took their understanding of God doing everything he wants down to know the, this is how God really is. All right. It's the opposite for us. <laughs> uh, we're uncomfortable with the idea of God doing much of anything. They attributed everything to God or God's working in the world. Okay. But they didn't want the law. It was too confining for them. And if there's one thing that's important to note about Israel's history is up until the Pharisees, they almost never obey the law. <laughs> and then, of course, the Pharisees took the law too far, which was like this over rotation, which happens in human nature. But for the longest time throughout these exiles, they didn't want to obey the law. They didn't want to ultimately see God for how God had revealed himself. They were more attracted to the gods of other nations that would allow them to do a lot of other stuff. This God was too confining, okay? Particularly because he went against the norms of society in allowing, um, you know, people who were evil and wealthy to uh, oppress and exploit the poor. He was the servant God, the from the bottom up, upside down way of doing things going. All right, so take it to today, we're dealing with fundamentally different perspective. We don't believe that God, or we have trouble believing that God does much of anything. We're still just as much a product of our society as they were. We can fault them for believing that God did everything, but we're no less um, uh, off the hook for having trouble believing that God does much of anything. We look back at the ancients as modern folks and think of them as superstitious and stupid. Um, we have an arrogance problem. In the same way that every society has their arrogance problem, we've just got to understand and own it and recognize it. So what does God give us, us individuals and 
and um, our lack of seeing God work in the world around us, he gives us Jesus. Not law. There's plenty of laws. We can figure out laws on our own. He ultimately gives us Jesus. But of course, again, in our understanding of the world around us, that's too confining for us. We don't want to have to be confined to one person's character or one person's way of living and working in the world to know God's character. Okay. And so we have the same issue uh, that they do is that we find Jesus often too confining. Um, Doesn't fit into our understanding of of how the world should work and and who God is. But both uh, societies, and the important thing to note about this, and I'll answer more questions about that later if you have some, but again, the most important thing to see here is that we fail to see God working. They either see him as working in everything, which isn't right, or we see him as working nowhere, which is the same, not right, okay? But it allows us to justify our actions based on um, either God approves of everything or God just doesn't care, which is our bigger problem. Grant alluded to this a little bit when he talked about deism, theism, um, I think last week or the week before that. So that leads us all to say, and I know that was a very long introduction, and I'm sorry, and if you have questions about that, we'll circle back to these ideas later on throughout our series or at the end today in the Q&A. So that leads us to these false prophets. If people have this natural inclination to refuse to see God working in the world, then they're going to gather around them false prophets to confirm how they want to see God working in the world. And this is the, the, one of the most important emphases of the Old Testament is God speaking out against the false prophets, saying, no, these people are telling you that I'm working here or that I'm not working here. And they're speaking out of their own mind and out of their own visions. And it's fundamental to understand this question of does God work the same today uh, uh, to understand what it looks like to fall for a false prophet or fall for a lack of understanding of who God is and how he works. So I want to read three passages and actually I'll I'll kind of farm these out to you guys uh, and you can read them. Um, the first one's going to be Ezekiel 13, 1 through 12. So if someone will, uh, will someone just do a raise the hand or a quick? I'll, I'll do it. it. All right. Justin's got that one. The second one is Jeremiah 14, 11 through 16. All right. Got it, Krista. And then the last one is Jeremiah 23, 25 through 36. Someone got that one? I can do it. Can you say that again? Jeremiah 23, what? 25 through 36. Now, to give you, while you're looking those up, so I'll repeat them again. Ezekiel 13, 1 through 12. Jeremiah 14, 11 through 16. And Jeremiah 23, 25 through 36. Now, to give a little bit of background for these passages, Uh, In the Jeremiah passage, they're about to go in exile, and the false prophets are telling them the opposite of what God's trying to tell them. Uh, In Ezekiel, it's the same thing. They're in that exile, and the prophets are telling them the opposite of what God's telling them. Um, A really poignant passage is in Jeremiah 28, where, um, you know, the prophet Jeremiah uh, hears of this prophetess named Hananiah, and Hananiah predicts that the exile will be over in two years. Jeremiah says, oh my gosh, that would be great. I'm so excited about that. 
Um, and in Hananiah's uh, prophecy, she says, you know, this wooden yoke that's on us will be broken in two years. Jeremiah goes back to talk to God. God says, Hananiah is a false prophet. Um, what she's saying is not accurate at all. Go back and tell her that not only is the wooden yoke not going to be removed from your neck, but now you're going to get an iron yoke and you're going to be in exile for so many more years. Not because of her false um, prophecy, but because that was already the plan. And she was just trying to tell people and give them comfort where there was no comfort. And so there's a lot of that going on in the Old Testament. These prophets talking and telling people where God is working. And every time one of them would pop up, a hundred others would pop up that would say the opposite message. Uh, and so it was very hard for both the evil and the righteous to get any kind of understanding of where God was actually working. So let's read these three passages, uh, which I think will, will give us kind of a couple takeaways for what it looks like to avoid uh, false prophecy or avoid uh, a lack of understanding of where God is working and, and what he's doing. Go ahead with the Ezekiel one. All right. Uh then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, prophesy against the false prophets of Israel who are inventing their own prophecies. Say to them, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits the false prophets who are following their own imaginations and have seen nothing at all. O people of Israel, these prophets of yours are like jackals digging in the ruins. They have done nothing to repair the breaks in the walls around the nation. They have not helped it to stand firm in battle on the day of the Lord. Instead, they have told lies and made false predictions. They say, this message is from the Lord who sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill false if you claim this message is from the Lord when I have not even spoken to you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because what you say is false and your visions are a lie, I will stand against you, says the sovereign Lord. I will raise my fist against all the prophets who see false visions and make lying predictions, and they will be banished from the community of Israel. I will blot their names from Israel's record books, and they will never again set foot in their own land. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. This will happen because these evil prophets deceive my people by saying, all is peaceful when there is no peace at all. It's as if the people have built a flimsy wall and these prophets are trying to reinforce it by covering it with whitewash. Tell these whitewashers that their wall will soon fall down. A heavy rainstorm will undermine it. Great hailstones and mighty ones will knock it down. And when the wall falls, the people will cry out, what happened to your whitewash? Jeremiah 14. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of these people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. But I said, alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they're saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine, and the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them. 
their wives, their sons, and their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. And the last year, my one, 23. Okay, I'm looking. Okay, I have heard what the prophets who prophesy, a lie in my name, have said. I have a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the minds of the prophets, prophesying lies, prophets of the deceit of their own minds? Through their dreams that they tell one another, they plan to cause my people to forget my name, as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream, but the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully, for what is straw compared to grain? This is the Lord's declaration. Is not my word like fire? This is the Lord's declaration, and like a hammer that pulverizes rock. Therefore, take note, I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who steal my words from each other. I'm against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who use their own tongues to make a declaration. I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, the Lord's declaration, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It was not I who sinned or commanded them, and they are of no benefit to all these people. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, when these people are, or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You will respond to them. What is the burden? I will throw you away. This is the Lord's declaration. As for the prophet, priest, or people who say the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. This is what each man is to say to his friend and to his brother. What has the Lord answered? Or what has the Lord spoken? But no longer refer to the burden of the Lord, for each man's word becomes his burden, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of armies, our God. This last part's a little confusing, but it's basically God speaking through Jeremiah to say you ought to test each other when you've decided to say something is from God or not. And so while the people in the Old Testament had the law and the prophets, okay, to guide them in understanding uh, how God is working, we no longer need that. We have Jesus to guide us on how God works in the world. All right. Now that sounds really simple. The problem is in the same way that the old Testament um, Israelites struggled against false prophecy, we still struggle against false prophecy. And so I want to give kind of five takeaways here uh, that I think will be helpful for us in determining how to really notice and understand God's work in the world, particularly on kind of a, a bigger global level, um, then, uh, and then kind of compare that to, uh, you know, sort of how we understand that in Jesus. So number one from these passages, and there's a lot more like them, telling people that God will do or has done something that isn't confirmed yet, okay, is indicative of what false prophets do. <laughs> It's easy to say something will happen that hasn't been confirmed. Okay. This is what happens with the two-year yoke in Hananiah. This is every Pentecostal preacher talking about the end of the world. <laughs> it's kind of a low blow. Um, but, you know, telling people that God will do or has done something that isn't confirmed is often a mark of, of false prophets. Jesus said that wisdom is proved right by our actions. Okay. Jesus, in testing people, would say things like, you know, wait till this temple is, is, you know, torn down and then rebuilt in three days. Talking, of course, about his body and about the future temple being destroyed. Things that were confirmed. John 7, Jesus, again, you want to know if my word is true or not? Try it out. And so one of the, I think, first steps is we've got to be very careful about people um, 
you know, saying things that either haven't been confirmed uh, or in the future won't be confirmed. There's a real clear message throughout scripture that God does what he says he's going to do. And if those things aren't confirmed, uh, they're often um, a result of false prophets. The second thing, saying what people already want to hear with no regard to revelation. It's a big part of this. Okay. Now, Jesus didn't just come to be contrary. In fact, he said a lot of what people wanted to hear, particularly the poor and destitute, right? Jesus's message to uh, the lowly in um, Israel was of great importance, and they wanted to hear it so much so that they, they couldn't even believe it. But his, his message certainly wasn't very helpful or interesting to the religious elites. And so even adding that, that when, you know, um, we're speaking peace into the power struggle and power dynamics and the folks in power don't like it and the folks who have none uh, do, that might give us a sense. But when people already want to hear what they want to hear without regard to re uh, revelation, um, then, uh, yeah, we're, we're in trouble there, um, possibly listening to false teaching or false prophets. So the third one is empowering evil people to continue to be evil and causing the righteous unnecessary grief. This is what comes out of this uh, passage in Ezekiel 13. Um, but basically it, he's saying that your, your false prophets allow the people who are already evil to continue in their evil and God would not allow that and allows and, and causes the righteous to grieve unnecessarily. <laughs> I, it, this reminds me very much of Isaiah six and the passage that Jesus says, you know, that you'll forever be understanding, um, and, and, but never perceiving or excuse me. Well, I can't ever remember it, but you know what I mean? Hearing, but not actually hearing, or hearing, not actually understanding, whatever. Uh, he's repeating this from Isaiah. And uh, the idea is that people are listening, but not actually, um, you know, understanding what the message really is about. Okay, Jesus called out evil for evil, and his prophecy didn't allow uh, evil people to be empowered and continue on. Whitewashing the truth. He told the truth, even when that meant his life was at stake, right? And this last passage talks about them taking these walls and just covering over the cracks with new paint. <laughs> Anytime, uh, you know, we fail to address structural or, you know, important foundational issues, but rather just try to, you know, pretty them up, well, that can very much be a, uh, a sign of false prophecy. Okay, and the last one, I think, and the most obvious one is exploiting the destitute. Anytime that our, um, you know, prophecy or God's work in the world exploits those at the very bottom, uh, we've got a real problem. You think about the passage that was used there in Jeremiah, jackals among ruins. <laughs> Jesus empowered the destitute, he empowered the people. Now, that's not to say that he gave them a free pass or a free road, but he allowed uh, them to have, you know, a dignity and, and move forward. Uh, and that means the spiritual impoverished, too. It certainly doesn't mean just the economically impoverished. The people who had no chance, people who really didn't grow up around um, the kind of religious opportunities as other people did. So in conclusion, to make sense of all of what we're talking about here, when we really want to see God's work in the world, God hasn't given us some super spiritual, um, I don't know, 3D glasses. That doesn't even, that's a terrible example. Uh, to see exactly what it is he's doing. He's given us Jesus. And we know that when we look back to what Jesus did and who he is, we can make sense of what God is doing in the world. Now, many of us, we want more than that. 
We want conclusive proof that God is doing something. But listen to me. Conclusive proof, number one, doesn't require faith. Jesus constantly downplays the miracles that he does. And in fact, gives this really amazing story about Abraham, Lazarus, and a rich man. You know, do you remember that one? The rich man is sort of uh, wants water. He's in hell and he's you know, burning up. And he asks Lazarus for some water. And Abraham says, no, there's a divide between there. He's like, all right, if I can't get water for myself, then at least go tell my, have Lazarus go tell my brothers what this place is like. And remember what Abraham's response to them is? If he doesn't believe in Moses and the prophets, not even a man coming back from the dead is going to convince them to live a different life. Okay. And I think we have to take that to heart. <laughs> if we can't see God's work through Jesus and in the world, and we need some conclusive proof, we're a little bit in trouble because God's given us what we need already to see him at work. Maybe not to the degree that we want, but he has given us what we need in Jesus to understand his work in the world. And that's an important thing. So in determining God's work, let's be really careful not to attribute things to God or accept things attributed to him that smack of false prophecy. We need to be very careful about this. Okay. Too many well-meaning Christians contribute all kinds of things to God that would probably not pass the sniff test here when it comes to false prophecy. But to understand and look back on these things and be very careful to, that we're hearing from God. Um, and second, and more importantly, let us continue to look to Jesus, to know God and know how he works in our world. We've got to constantly go back to him, and who he is, and how he worked uh, in his own world to figure out what God is doing and, uh, and make sense of it. All right, so questions about, uh, about this? It's probably a little bit too much for today, but you know, I tried to kind of include a, uh, an intro to the whole Old Testament, New Testament thing. So maybe that was a little bit too much, not for sure. Feedback, questions, comments before we move into uh, our uh, worship time? Hey, I had a question on your first yeah, question. Uh, the first one about like, the confirming thing, like saying this is from God before it's confirmed. What is it? What do you mean by like confirmed? Is there like a point where we see that it's confirmed? How do we like look for that? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. So I think uh, this one's the tricky one, right? Because we certainly, we, I think we speak with skepticism, things that God has told us will happen in the future. Um, and those things can only be tested by time. They either didn't happen or they did happen. Um, and I think there's confidence in that. I think the bigger, um, you know, issue here was that there were very specific things people said was, were going to happen and they didn't come to pass. So in terms of confirmation, I believe that God is a God of, you know, he, he brings about the promises that he makes. And so we have to be careful about putting his name on something, um, you know, not being prophets ourselves, right. Uh, that, uh, that hasn't been fully kind of confirmed. Uh, and by com confirmation, you know, with some things are obviously not going to be factually confirmed in numbers or exact dates, but I think they can be more or less confirmed by godly people who see this as God working. But let's just be very careful uh, as we aren't ourselves prophets um, to, you know, make sure those confirmations uh, are in line with, you know, what Jesus says about, you know, coming through with his promises. Does that make some more sense? It's really a tricky thing. And I think that could be, that's probably the hardest takeaway of the whole thing is the confirmation idea uh, in prophecy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Ryan, feedback, 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's helpful. Uh, yes. Uh, earlier, you were talking about how people in the past know God was working and um, they attributed things to him and all this stuff. Whereas you mentioned now we have trouble believing God does much of anything. Um, what did you mean by that? Because I feel like a lot of people want to know that God is working and doing things in their life. Um, but the statement you made is contrary to that. So I was just kind of wondering if you could go more in depth on that. Yeah, I mean, they sure they sure they want to have God working. There's no doubt. But that doesn't mean that their default perspective is that they believe he's working. This is really just a sociological observation of Western civilization development, that it went from, you know, sort of this stage in which God did everything to this kind of stage where people question God to this stage where now people, for the most part, default, don't believe God does much of anything. Uh, and so I think most of us, if we're honest, we live a life of, of practical atheism, which is what Grant was talking about. And it's very hard for us to see and believe God's working in the world. But this burden is no different than people in the Old Testament who believed God was doing everything around them and had to kind of take that down to, okay, what is God really doing? And what are things that are nations, the world, that kind of stuff? Um, you know, specifically attributing things to God that ought not be attributed to him. So I'm just talking about default worldview kind of thinking um, and how that, how we all have to kind of get out of that equally um, to be able to really see specifically who God is and what he's doing. Any others? Maybe one more. All right. I'll turn it over to uh, Grant or Aaron, whoever's leading our worship. Uh, I'm leading the worship today. Uh, so today we're going to continue our worship series with the topic that everything God creates is good. Um, I'm going to sing a couple songs, How Great Thou Art, and This Is My Father's World, and you're all free to sing along. I chose these songs because I think they really demonstrate the theme of God creating good things and how his creation can oftentimes point us back to his goodness um, if we reflect on what we are seeing. Uh, being in nature for me is one of the ways I find it easiest to connect to God and to remember who he is. So I'm going to give some context to these songs. Um, How Great Thou Art was written in the 1880s by a Swedish name, man named Carl Boberg. Um, he was walking home and one day a storm appeared. So he ran home and after the storm passed, he opened his windows and took in all the beauty of the nature around him. And that led him to writing the poem and setting it to music um, in his native tongue of Swedish. And then it was translated to German and then English and several verses were added. And the story behind This Is My Father's World is very similar. It was written by a Presbyterian minister in New York and it was published after his death. Um, the minister, Reverend Babcock, would often take walks during his lunch break and he would refer to going out, he'd refer to his time as going out to sing his father's world. In his song, he uses the imagery, um, the rustling grass, the birds singing carols, the nature singing to portray the beauty that is God's creation and even how, and how even just by simply existing, that that's a sign of God's goodness. So I'm gonna sing the original two verses written by Boberg, which are a direct product of him experiencing just how big God is. Um, and I'm also gonna sing some verses from my father's world, and then I'm gonna read Psalm eight, and then we're gonna break into groups. Mm -hmm.
awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hand hath made I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder Thy power throughout the universe displayed Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. glades I wander, I hear the birds sing sweetly through the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, I hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Now Amen. Sing, this is my Father's world. Thanks, Judy. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me. In right. 
This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied when earth and heaven be So now I'm going to read. Encore. Another one. Well, Thanks, no, Troy. I'm going to do that. So Thank you, Troy. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to read a quote from Father Richard Rohr. It says, Thank you. If we are created in the image and likeness of God, then whatever good, true, or beautiful things we can say about humanity or creation, we can say of God exponentially. God is the beauty of creation and humanity multiplied to the infinite power. And I'm going to read Psalm 8, and then we're going to break into groups and discuss those three questions that we've been going through. Um, it says, all of creation beckons me to worship you. The grandeur of the universe echoes your glory. More than spectacular is the work of your hands. Who can match your brilliance and authority? You set the boundaries for the ocean. You raise majestic mountains to touch the sky. Sunrise and sunset happens on your watch. Who is mankind that you are mindful of us? The frail sons and daughters that you would entrust us to rule over all you've made. Who are the peoples of the earth that we get to bear your image? Who am I that you even notice me? How can it be that my tears and dreams matter to you? Eternal God, beyond time and space, who am I that you lean in when I draw near? The wind and sea obey your command, yet you invite me to follow you with a whisper. Holy God, you know my hidden sin, yet you offer me new mercies every morning. Um, so yeah, whoever is in charge of splitting us into groups can go ahead and do that. And we're going to discuss the questions that we do every week. And I'll read those again. It's what does this say about the heart of God? What might God be saying to me or our community? And how can you respond in obedience? Well, thank you very much, um, Troy, today for doing music. It's been a while. Yes. Uh, that was awesome. And uh, for Aaron and Grant, as always, for leading our worship. So um, we'll break from there. And next week, Garrett, my brother, who is not near as cool as I am or ever will be, uh, will come and talk to us a little bit about uh, our sermon series. So stay tuned. This posted on Facebook if you have any kind of uh, inclination to go and do a little research or kind of heads up. We do have the questions there, and so you can do that. All righty. You guys have an excellent week. We'll see some of you for trivia tonight. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.